Father, we thank you for your great love for us. We thank you that we can gather together with a community of um, uh, people that uh, want to seek after you in the ways that that helps us to put our minds on heavenly things. Pray that you'd be here with us and speak to us through your word. Pray that you would address uh, issues in our hearts that would help us to live not for this world, but for you. uh, Pray that you'd be worshipped and glorified and honored in our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, David's rise to the throne uh, from 2 Samuel chapter 3. It's another epic saga, uh, 39 verses. So we'll read through most of it. But I learned my lesson from last week, so I'm not going to go through it in the beginning. We'll kind of chop it up and then uh, go through it um, throughout the sermon. And uh, today... Also is um, World Communion Day, uh, where uh, brothers and sisters in many places around the world will participate in the Lord's Supper, and we'll do that as well um, in our at the end of our worship service. Okay, so so we'll think through this text together. Um, I thought about calling it Part Two of last week's sermon because similar things are happening. David is still. Um, getting ready to take the throne, and a lot of human characters are playing a part in that process of David coming to the throne, and and then we'll see through this text what God does through all of those human manipulations. Um, So it's entitled David's Rise to the Throne. We'll look at three things. First, David's many wives. David's many wives. Verse 1 says, we read this last week, there's a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David, and David grew stronger and stronger while the house of Saul became weaker and weaker. So the author tells us what's happening um, as all these crazy things are going on. We read some of that last week in chapter 2. We'll read more of it in chapter 3. Uh, a lot of different people have different agendas or doing different things, but in the midst of it all, God is working because ultimately this is what God is accomplishing. This is the part of the story of redemption that God is accomplishing to bring David to the throne. Verse 2, and sons were born to David at Hebron. And then it lists six sons here. Uh, The sons are Amnon, Chiliab, Absalom, Adonijah, Shephathiah, and Ithream, born to six different wives, Ahinoam, Abigail, Maka, Haggith, Abito, and Igla. Okay, and then the end of verse 4 says, um, these were born to David in Hebron. So now, obviously, David had multiple wives, and these sons were born to him during that seven-and-a-half-year period when he was in Hebron. Uh, What do you do when you read something like this? And one thing that's important to realize is that just because something happened and is recorded in the Bible, uh, it doesn't mean that that's what should have happened. Just because it's in the Bible, just because someone like David did it, doesn't mean that's what was supposed to happen. And this is a good example of that. Because the author tells us 
that David had many wives, and then there's no um, explanation of that. There's no like approval, approval or disapproval of that. It just tells us that that's, that's what happened. So we can read that and we can mistakenly think that this was condoned or permitted by God at that time. And uh, actually, people point to things like this to argue that things like marriage was time-dependent, that certain biblical commands like marriage aren't really applicable today. What we read in the Bible about marriage isn't applicable today because the Bible was written at a different time when people thought differently. And they'll argue things like that even today. But what David did in taking many wives was clearly a violation of God's eternal law. Genesis 2.24 says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So God's original intention in marriage was for two to exclusively become one. Two, not six or seven or you know, but two to ex exclusively become one. Deuteronomy 17, 17 says, and he, meaning the king uh, of God's people, he shall not acquire many wives for himself. So the law, the Mosaic law is saying, even if other people do it, the king shall not acquire many wives. But obviously David did not follow God's command. And because David did not follow God's command, this area of his life was actually a, a source of acute pain throughout David's life. We actually read in later chapters in this very book in 2 Samuel about some of the consequences that he had to go through in his family life. So, for example, Amnon, one of his sons, violated his half-sister Tamar. Absalom, who was Tamar's brother, murdered Amnon. Absalom also tried to take David's throne. Adonijah tried to take the throne away from Solomon, um, David's son from another wife, actually. Okay. So for a good portion of David's kingship, he had to deal with the painful consequences of going against the law of God. So even though this is listed here in these verses, David's wives and his sons, um, it's almost like it's serving as a warning against going against the word of God. Later on in redemptive history, when Jesus comes on the scene, he restores God's original intent for marriage for the citizens of God's kingdom. And Jesus actually quotes the same verse in Genesis, and he says in Matthew 19, verse 5, he says, God said the two shall become one flesh. And he restores God's original intent. So this practice of having many wives was practiced. Even David had many wives. God did not condone it. He did not approve it. But God still worked through it. Sometimes like we hear something like that. God didn't approve it. God didn't condone it. But he still worked through it. And then we kind of get confused. Like how is that even possible? Um, I think we can kind of think of it like this. It can be said... The same kind of thing can be said of the sin of materialism today, right? Like, for example, like, we buy all kinds of things that we don't need just because we have the money to do it and because we want it. Um, and as we do those things and accumulate and accumulate, accumulate, 
we actually don't even give enough of what we have. So we constantly accumulate wealth, buy more things, and always we're kind of moving toward this lifestyle of comfort and convenience. And then once in a while, we see someone break out of that paradigm. And we, once in a while, we see someone who give up their wealth for the sake of the gospel. And then we look at that and we think, oh, that's good. That's good. That's what it looks like to really live following God's word. And then we go right back to living how we want to live. So, so think about that. We live in a culture that's drowning in materialism. And someone from another time, another place, another culture might look at us and wonder, why did God permit that? That kind of materialism. But the thing is, God still works through our lives, even today, to move redemptive history forward. And that's just another example of the grace of God that was at work at the time of David, and that's continually at work in our lives today. So David's many wives, highlighting the grace of God. Secondly, Abner's peace treaty, verse 6. While there was war between the house of Saul and the house of David, Abner, remember he was the former uh, commander of King Saul. Now he pet, sets up a puppet king in Saul's son. Abner was making himself strong in the house of Saul. So it becomes more and more clear that Abner had a personal agenda in placing Ishbosheth as king. It was a way to, it says, make himself strong. Verse 7. Now Saul had a concubine whose name was Rizpah, the daughter of Ayah. And Ishbosheth said to Abner, Why have you gone into my father's concubine? Okay. So Ishbosheth accuses Abner, Ishbosheth, the, um, the puppet king. Saul's son accuses Abner of sleeping with Saul's concubine. And if Abner actually did that, it would have been a public statement or a challenge for the throne. At that time, that's how it worked, which is exactly what David's son Absalom does later when he's trying to overtake David's throne. So in any case, Ishbosheth sees it as a deliberate move to gain the throne. Verse 8. Then Abner was very angry over the words of Ishbosheth and said, Am I a dog's head of Judah to this day? I, I, I keep showing steadfast love to the house of Saul, your father, to his brothers and to his friends, and have not given you into the hand of David. And yet you charge me today with a fault concerning a woman. Um, so again, it's one of these things, like it's hard to know exactly for sure what's going on here. The author already told us that Abner was making himself strong. So, you know, he, was, he has some sort of personal agenda. So it's possible that he realized that David is becoming too strong uh, to overcome. And so maybe Abner is using this incident as an excuse to switch sides. Maybe that's what's going on. Or maybe he's genuinely offended and fed up with Ishbosheth, and that's why he decides to switch sides. Either way, that's what he does. He switches allegiance. Verse 9. God do so to Abner and more also if I do not accomplish for David what the Lord has sworn to him, to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and set up the throne of David over Israel and over Judah from Dan to Beersheba. And Ishbosheth could not answer Abner because, in other words, because he feared him. So we discover that Abner already knew that it was the Lord's purpose to give David the kingship over Israel, but for whatever reason, he, he's been purposely defying that. 
until now. Verse 12, and Abner sent messengers to David on his behalf, saying, to whom does the land belong? Meaning, it belongs to you, David. Make your covenant with me, and behold, my hand shall be with you and bring over Israel, all Israel, to you. So Abner, uh, playing a political game, first sends messengers, offers this proposal for a covenant. And again, it's quite possible that Abner is making a political move, coming to David because he feels like he has a better personal future on David's side now. Verse 13, and he said, and he said, good, I will make a covenant with you. So surprisingly, David's, this is David's response. He agrees and accepts Abner's proposal. But he says, I will agree to this covenant with you under one condition. Continuing on verse 13. But one thing I require of you, that is, you shall not see my face unless you first bring Michal, Saul's daughter, when you come to see my face. Then David sent messengers to Ishbosheth, saw a son saying, give me my wife, Michal. And uh, um, we read that in 1 Samuel. Michal was rightfully David's wife, but Saul had taken her away and given her to someone else. Uh, and again here, we don't know if David is making this demand for personal reasons or if this was a political move. Michal is Saul's daughter, the daughter of the previous king, and having her as his wife would solidify his kingship in Israel. Verse 15, and Ishbosheth sent and took her from her husband, Paltiel, the son of Laish. But her husband went with her, weeping after, after her all the way to Bahurim. And Abner said to him, Go return, and he, and he returned. So Ishbosheth complies and works now with Abner, probably because he feared Abner. Verse 17, Abner conferred with the elders of Israel, saying, For some time, for some time past, you have been seeking David as king over you. So it seems like even from this verse that the sentiment in Israel uh, was changing, was leaning toward David. So maybe Abner sensed that and his plan, um, realized that his plan was destined to fail in Israel. And now maybe he switches sides and begins to start campaigning for David up in the north in Israel. Verse 18. Now then, bring it about, for the Lord has promised David, saying, By the hand of my servant David, I will save my people, Israel, from the hand of the Philistines, from the hand of all their enemies. Abner also spoke to Benjamin, and then Abner went to tell David at Hebron all that Israel and the whole house of Benjamin thought good to do. Abner delivers on his promise to David, even getting the tribe of Benjamin, Saul's tribe, on board. Verse 20, when Abner came... With 20 men to David at Hebron, David made a feast for Abner and the men who were with him. And Abner said to David, I will rise and go and will gather all Israel to my lord the king, that they may make a covenant with you, that you may reign over all that your heart desires. So David sent Abner away, and he went in peace. So here Abner comes to David in person. They share a feast, and likely that's the confirmation of the covenant. Abner leaves to gather all, all the people of Israel to prepare for a public confirmation of the covenant. Now, for all practical purposes, uh, the war is over. There is peace. That's what the verse says, right? And he went in peace. Okay, now, let's pause here for a second. Again, just as we talked about last week from the last chapter, there are many unanswered questions because the author does not touch on it. 
um, one commentator, Dr. Robert Vinoy, raises some of these questions that this text does not address. So don't waste your time this week talking about it in small group because there are no answers to these questions in the text. Uh, he raises some of these questions. Was David playing a political game and seeking legitimacy to the throne by reinstating his marriage to the daughter of the former king? Is that what he was doing? Uh, where's the patience that David displayed for so long in waiting for the Lord to place him on the throne in his own time and in his way? Doesn't seem like as much he's trusting God here. Um, did David really need Abner's help to bring him to power in Israel? Should David, David should, should he have made this pact with him in the first place? Um, why is there no record of David seeking the Lord's will as in his move to Hebron? We saw that last week. So think about that. There are so many questions that the author does not address, and I think it's because the author's main intent is to convey that regardless of the circumstances, despite all the human beings involved in their selfish intents, God was at work to bring David to the throne. 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 28, Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel away from you this day. And this is Samuel talking to Saul and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you, and obviously is referring to David. And that was God, what God was working toward all along through all of these complicated human maneuvers. This is what God was accomplishing. God was working through human agents, working through all kinds of man's sins to work out his sovereign plan. Um, I once knew this couple who was engaged to be married. Uh, they had been dating for some years, and then they were engaged to be married. And, uh, and they were in the process of preparing. So, so they had done much of the wedding preparations. They booked the venue. They made arrangements. And those of you that are booking venues, you, you know how, what a big deal that is? They booked the venue made arrangements for the food and the drinks, set up all kinds of things that go into preparing for a wedding. And then um, just a few months before the wedding, uh, the guy broke up with the girl. And obviously she was shocked, embarrassed, devastated. Um, and uh, she had a very difficult few years after that experience. I was her pastor, so I remember trying to care for her in the days, like in the immediate days after that, that breakup. And I actually don't remember anything I said to her. I just tried to uh, be with her and try to at least provide some sort of comfort as she went through that. But what do you do? What do you do when you go through something like that? As you process through all the different emotions of, of hurt and Anger, shock, betrayal. You see, we often don't know how to respond because things like that are not a part of our plan. We don't anticipate things like that happening in our lives. The way we expect our lives to go, you meet the guy, you fall in love, and then you get engaged, 
And that's supposed to lead to, to getting married and then raising a family and living a happy life together. But when the guy proposes and then later walks away, now what do you do? Now, that brings you to a dead end because that's not how it was supposed to go. And so at the, in that dead end, you don't know where to go from there, from something like that. But I think what this story, a story like this is showing us is that God expects sinful human behavior all the time. At every turn of redemptive history, there's a sinful person with sinful intentions doing sinful things and pushing the narrative forward. But also at every turn, we see this constantly, a God who works through human sins. So, so follow with me. What we're saying is not, what we're saying here is not that God usually, usually works through good things that we do, and then once in a while, God has to work despite man's sins. That's not what we're saying. Rather, redemptive history moves forward as God constantly works through man's sins. That's exactly what we learn from the story of Joseph. That's what Joseph says to his brothers in Genesis 50, verse 20. Years after they, his very brothers, sold him into slavery out of jealousy. Joseph says, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. Joseph basically says, you selling me into slavery was God's will for me. That kind of thing happening in my life was God's will for me because God worked through their desires to harm Joseph and brought about the saving of many lives. And for that same reason, that girl that I just told you about would have been right to say it was God's will for this engagement to not end in marriage because God was working even through that broken relationship to accomplish his will. And that's what we see in this story, a sovereign God working through the schemes and manipulations of human beings to accomplish his purpose. Lastly, thirdly, Joab's revenge killing. Verse 22, just then the servants of David arrived with Joab from a raid, bringing much spoil with them. But Abner was not with David at Hebron, for he had sent him away and he had gone in peace. Author again points out that the war is over, there's peace. Verse 23, it was told Joab, Abner the son of Ner came to the king and he has let him go and he has got in peace. Then Joab went to the king and said, What have you done? Behold, Abner came to you. Why is it that you sent him away so that he is gone? So Joab couldn't believe what just happened. He was here and you let him go? Joab goes on to say that you can't trust Abner. He's scheming. He's here to spy on you. Verse 26, when Joab came out from David's presence, he sent messengers after Abner, and they brought him back from the cistern of Sirah, and David did not know about it. Joab was not about to let Abner get away. The author, again, makes it clear that David didn't know what Joab was up to. Verse 
27, when Abner returned to Hebron, Joab took him aside into the midst of the gate to speak with him privately, and there he struck him in the stomach so that he died for the blood of Esahel, his brother. David was willing to forgive, make peace and forgive, but Joab couldn't get over his personal grievance. So after the war is over, in a time of peace, Joab kills Abner in cold blood. 28, afterward, when David heard of it, he said, I and my kingdom are forever guiltless before the Lord for the blood of Abner, the son of Ner. David's immediate reaction is to distance himself from Joab. He wants everyone to know that he had no part in it. And then he places a curse on Joab and his descendants. Verse 29, may it fall upon the head of Joab and upon all his father's house. May the house of Joab never be without one who has a discharge or who is leprous, who holds a spindle, who falls by the sword, or who lacks bread. This curse falls on Joab and his house for, it seems like, breaking the covenant that David had made with Abner. The same way that it would have fell on either of them if that covenant was broken, now it falls on Joab and his house. So Joab, verse 30, and Abishai, his brother, killed Abner because he had put their brother Esahel to death in the battle at Gibeon. Then David said to Joab, to all the people who were with him, carry your clothes, put on sackcloth, mourn for Abner. The king followed the bier. So David mourned for Abner, participated in his funeral, wept for Abner, wrote a lament for Abner, and fasted for Abner. In verse 36, and all the people took notice of it, and it pleased them. Everything that the king did pleased all the people. So all the people in all Israel understood that day it had not been the king's will to put to death Abner, the son of Ner. So as a result of everything that David did, now the people knew that David was innocent of Abner's death. And it seems like that was an intentional point of emphasis for David because uh, it says, for all the people, and the term all the people is repeated here, all the people, to, for them to reunite under one kingship, they had to know that he didn't kill Abner to gain power. 38, the king said to, said to the servants, do you not know that a prince and a great man has fallen this day in Israel? I was, a, I was gentle today, though anointed king. These men, the sons of Zeruiah, meaning Joab and his brother, are more severe than I. And some translations use more powerful or more strong, are more severe than I. The Lord repay the evildoer according to his wickedness. David is Israel's king, and uh, he's supposed to demonstrate God's righteous rule over his people. So how does he handle this unjust killing? What is the righteous response? David does not bring Joab to justice at this moment. He believes that they, Joab and his brothers, that they should be judged for this killing. Um, and under different circumstances, David would have executed that judgment, but not right now. He says they're too strong. I cannot do it. So he entrusts their judgment to the Lord. Um, you probably came across a story at some point this week. Uh, it's a story of uh, Botham Jean, who's black. 
shot and killed in his own apartment by Amber Geiger, a white off-duty police officer who mistakenly thought that she was entering her own apartment and took him for an intruder. She was sentenced to 10 years. And uh, the video of the victim's brother went viral this week in which he forgave her, um, the former officer who shot his brother, and uh, he asks her to accept Jesus and gives her a hug. And that video, I'm sure many of you saw. And then um, in response to that video, I came across a couple of articles that was written in response to that forgiveness video, right, saying that the gospel is both forgiveness and justice. So we can't just forget the need for justice, um, you know, as we make a video like that viral. We can't just forget the need for justice, especially in a case where race and injustice is undeniably a part. And I read that, and, um, and we can understand. We can understand the anger, the frustration in yet another race-related shooting and how the entire system and culture seems clearly bent to favor certain people over others. So I read that response, and I asked myself this question. So obviously, this was a Christian family. Um, so I asked myself this question. So how should the victim's family member respond in a way that shows both the gospel of grace and the gospel of justice? The gospel contains both grace and forgiveness and justice and righteousness. How should the family member respond in such a way that shows both? So, so think about that. If, the, if, if it's true that the brother is saying, I forgive you, and if the mother is saying, we need justice, how can one person demonstrate both forgiveness and justice? It's a 100%, of course, understandable that the family and many others would be angry in the situation, right? The sentiment is, I want justice. I get, you know, I, I, I would say that, like, I want justice. I would cry out against the corrupt system. I, I you know, this, this is not good. I want justice. Um, but for me, like from that place of anger, I don't think I can uh, uh, forgive the offender. Something like that happens to your family member, someone you love, and all this injustice is involved. I want justice. I'm angry. From that place, I don't think I can forgive the offender. Um, so it seems like a humanly impossible thing to seek justice, and also completely forgive. Now, of course, like we know, forgiveness can only come through God, meaning I have to go through God to forgive. Like if I'm going to actually forgive someone, it's not going to come from me. I have to actually go through God to forgive. So that means a number of different things. I would have to believe I would have to believe that God always has and continues to work through 
the sinful intentions and behaviors of human beings. I would have to believe that. I would have to trust that. That God is always at work through sinful things that people are doing that sometimes I'm a victim of. I would have to trust in a situation like that, that God killed my brother for some divine purpose that he calls good. And I would have to believe that in a system where Joab is too strong for me, that ultimately, even as I cry out for justice, that ultimately I can entrust righteous judgment to God that he will repay the evildoers according to their wickedness, as David says. In other words, what we're saying here is the pathway to forgiveness inevitably goes through the cross because it's the cross where Jesus absorbs judgment and releases forgiveness. And that's the place, it seems, that the victor's, victim's brother, Brent, seems to be coming from. Jesus paid for my offense, so I forgive you as he has forgiven me. And from that place, and only from that place, from the cross, can I truly forgive and also advocate for justice from a heart of love. This summer, Okay, then before I leave that, let me just say, if there's anything that you want to discuss further about concerning that, any questions that uh, come up in your mind, please feel free to reach out. I'd be happy to talk about it. Uh, this summer, just lastly, I'll just close with this. Our family visited uh, Denver, shared about it a few weeks ago, and then we climbed the Rocky Mountains. Um, initially, we drove into the city of Denver, and we saw the mountains from a distance. And I looked at that and I thought to myself, oh, wow, wow, that's cool. Look at those mountains. Obviously, coming from a place where there are no mountains, um, oh, that's cool. Look at those mountains. That's, that's just cool. The next day, we actually went up the mountains. Uh, and as we're driving up, um, usually as we're driving up, there's mountain wall on one side and cliff on the other, right? But at one point, we got up as high as we could so that there were cliffs on both sides, meaning like we were at the very top. And from that point of view, I could not help but be in awe of what I saw. So saw the mountain from the ground, from a distance, oh, that's cool. Saw the mountain from the top, wow, this is truly amazing. I think that's often how it is in our perspective of God. We hear these things, the things that you just heard, we hear these things about God. We hear these things, we read these things about God, and we go, oh, yeah, of course. God is sovereign. He's working through sin. He's working out his good purposes. Oh, of course. That's what we're doing. We see God from a distance. Oh, he's cool. He's great. Yeah, of course, God is great. But in the real events, the very real events in our lives, as we go through it, as we open our spiritual eyes, and we actually see 
the God that this Bible is talking about, at work in our lives, working out his purposes in these very ways. And we personally experience it, then we begin to realize certain things. Sin doesn't just become a principle anymore. It's something that's really in me that's trying to take over my life that God is actually working in. I'm the one. I'm that person in the narrative trying to orchestrate my life with all kinds of sinful intentions. Not only that, but I'm that person being judged in that courtroom and not even realizing how costly that forgiveness is. It's me. I'm the one that's sitting there taking Jesus for granted. But then when we realize he actually does embrace me in all my sin, in all my wicked motives and intentions and maneuvering of my life to get what I want and all of that, how still he comes and embraces me and forgives me because of Jesus Christ. And when we see God, when we begin to see God from that point of view, it's no longer, oh, he's cool and he's great. How truly amazing he is. That even the painful, the most painful things that we can go through in our lives can actually produce something so beautiful in the hand of this awesome God. Pray that we will recognize and see God not from a distance, but from the mountaintop and truly wonder, be in awe of who he is. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your grace, your mercy, and your love for us. Thank you for uh, everything that was made possible because of Jesus Christ. We pray that you would strengthen us in our hearts by faith as we participate in the Lord's Supper. Help us to live for you in the strength that you provide. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace for us. We thank you that Jesus came into this world and took the the wrath of God and the punishment of God so that we can receive forgiveness and grace. We thank you that um, in all the wrongs and uh, injustices in this world, uh, we thank you that the gospel gives us a proper lens to see that through, that actually hearts can be transformed to hearts of love, to reinterpret, to be a, a new kingdom people that, uh, that shows people the love of Jesus Christ. Thank you that everything is made possible by your grace in our lives. Strengthen us and help us to love you more and to live for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's pray together. Uh, just uh, before we close our time together, let's just pray for um, some of these... Uh, current events going on in our world, some of these uh, cases, cases and the effects that it has on people. Let's pray that God would work in his sovereign plan um, in our generation, in our culture, in our time to bring about his justice and righteousness in a spirit of love and forgiveness. Let's pray for that and for um, empowerment of believers to continue to demonstrate that amazing 
grace to this world. Let's pray before we close. Father, we thank you for your word that is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. A lot of times we get lost because of our sins and also the effects of other people's offense against us. A lot of times we don't know what to do, feel like a dead end a lot of times in our lives. When our lives don't go according to plan, we thank you that you are above it all, using every uh, event, using every pain, every tear, to somehow mysteriously accomplish your good purpose in us and uh, in this world, all for your glory. Thank you that you're amazing, God, like that. Help us experience that and see that. Open our eyes. Open the, the, the eyes of our hearts that we might see you, even in the mundane, even in the daily things, how good you are, how faithful you are, how true you are, the, the Bible, the, the God that the Bible reveals to us, how you are exactly that in our lives. Thank you, Lord, that we can experience your grace through Jesus Christ and help us to be the agents of that grace in this world that is, uh, that is lost and apart from uh, the knowledge of Christ, unaware and uh, lost in their pursuit of um, grace and justice. Thank you, Lord. Now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, this incredible, unfathomable, covenant love of the Father God, fellowship, strength, and the power of the Holy Spirit be with you God's people, both now and forever.